All right, Acts 19. So last week we saw Paul's third missionary journey, and it's different from his first two. First two, he's kind of making a circuit through these different regions that have not been reached with the gospel. Third mission trip, he travels about a thousand miles to a particular place, Ephesus, and he plants there. And he spends about two and a half years in this one city. It's the most populous city in Asia. It's the commercial center, political center, very strategic for what he wants to do. From Ephesus, all of Asia winds up being evangelized, but Paul, it doesn't seem, is the one who goes. It looks like he sends out some of his co-workers during his two and a half years there. We said last week, one of the things that marked his two and a half years in Ephesus, Luke calls them, quote, extraordinary miracles. So these are not normal miracles. These are extraordinary miracles. Paul's sweat rags, the stuff that he gets all sweaty when he's working, people are taking those and putting those rags on people who are sick or who are demon-possessed, and when those rags touch them, they're healed and they're delivered. That's extraordinary. And we said in Ephesus particularly, there was this high uh, concentration of magic. Kind of the, the, the city was steeped in magic, not pull a rabbit out of a hat magic, but deal with evil spirits magic. So in that of them. And so you've got to make sure that you're appeasing all of the spirits all of the time, because if you don't, they will, they're going to smite you in some way. They're going to do something bad to you. That's what they do. And so your job as a person is to navigate through this unseen world with all of these spirits who are out to get you if you don't please them. And so in that world, magicians thrive because they say, I've got power over these spirits. And so I can help you navigate through that world. And so you don't have to live afraid all the time. You don't have to constantly worry, have I made offerings to all of the right spirits for this thing that I want to happen? And so in that world, again, magicians thrive, sorcerers, whatever you want to call them, witches, those kind of people thrive. And Paul, with these extraordinary miracles, what's happening there is God is elevating Jesus above all of those magicians. And we said when the people begin to see the effectiveness of the name of Jesus, people who don't even have a relationship with him try to use his name to drive out demons. We talked about those seven sons of Sceva. They're not, they don't know Jesus, but they're exorcists. That's how they make a living. So they go to a guy who's demon-possessed, and they try to cast out the demon in the name of Jesus. And the demon says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of. Who are you? And then he beats the fool out of all seven of these guys. And they all run out of the house naked and bleeding, and the name of Jesus is then elevated in the city. People go, there's something different about him. There's something different about that name than all of these other magic formulas, than all of these other spells, than all of these other tricks. There's something different. So much so that the Christians at Ephesus who've begun to follow Jesus say, we've got to get rid of all of our magic spells, all of this stuff associated with sorcery. We don't need it anymore. Jesus can help us navigate through this spiritual world. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He's superior. And so I don't need to fall back on any of this magic stuff anymore. And they bring all of it. It's like a public book burning. They bring all of these scrolls that have all of this ma- these magic incantations on them, and they burn them in the city. 50,000 drachmas worth of literature, if that's what you want to call it. A drachma was a day's wage. So 50,000 days worth of work. That was the value of these things that they burned. That's how seriously these Ephesian Christians are taking Um, the name of Jesus at that point. And so that's the backdrop for us as we pick up today in verse 21. First, some travel notes. After all this happened, after all of that 
public, burning, name of Jesus elevated, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, I must also visit Rome. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Not super important now, but those are they're a pivot point in the book of Acts. From now on through the end of, book of Acts, uh, the next nine chapters, everything's about getting Paul to Rome. And that's where the book ends. He's under house arrest in Rome in Acts 28 when the book ends. So that's everything at this point on. There's a, there's a hard pivot. How do we get Paul to Rome? This is Paul revealing his thought process. This is a letter to the Romans. He wrote it probably within a year of uh, this, what we're seeing here in um, Acts 19. There's no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you Romans, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. So you see, Paul's idea was I want to go all the way to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey after I've enjoyed your company. So Paul's philosophy was if there was already a church, he didn't spend any, he didn't stay. He was going to unreached areas, places where the gospel had not been preached. There was already a church in Rome. So he was going to go to Rome and he wanted Rome to give him money to help him go to Spain. That's what he was hoping for. Stop in for a visit. Then you guys financially help me get on to Spain. Now I'm on my way to Jerusalem in service of the Lord's people. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. So that's why he's going to Jerusalem. He's got money he wants to give. So after I've completed this task and made sure you've received, uh, that they've received this money, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. We don't know if Paul ever made it to Spain, but you can see his thinking there. And again, uh, moving forward, those two verses will help set the course for the rest of the book of Acts. So now we're back in Ephesus, verse 23. So about that time when all of this is going on, we've got the burning, we've got Paul deciding I'm going to leave and go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. There arose a great disturbance about the way, that's what they call Christianity, a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So uh, the thing that Ephesus is most famous for is this. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is a recreation. There's only one column of it left. It's the temple of Artemis. It was huge. Big as a football field from uh, end zone to end zone and all the way across. It's a huge building. And massive amounts of money flowed through. Tons and tons of people would come through every year to worship Artemis. She was considered a mother goddess, so uh, fertility, um, productivity with land, all of those things were tied to her. And so uh, she was worshipped throughout the empire, but Ephesus was a key hub for that. So lots of people would come through every year. So much money was actually given to this temple that it basically became a bank. It would, they would lend money. Out of this temple. That's how much money was coming into the major source of uh, commercial activity for the, center, for the city of Ephesus. And it was also a big part of their identity. Like, this is who we are. It, like this, this is their big chicken kind of thing. For, it's, it's what they're known for. That's, 
when you think Ephesus, you think that. And so there were these trades, these businesses that, that popped up around the worship of Artemis and around this temple. One of them where there were silversmiths, and they would make these little shrines like this. That's, a, that's one that's made out of terracotta. Um, but this, in, in Acts, we read that this guy Demetrius was the head of a group of guys, a guild, and they would make these things out of silver. So you would come to Ephesus and you would buy one of those and you'd either take it home and you would have an altar in your house or you would take it to that temple that we just saw and you would give it as an offering. And it made, these guys made a lot of money. And they made a lot of money for a long time. And Paul starts and he starts preaching. We saw it last week. He preaches in a guy's hall named Tyrannus. And he has the worst part of the day when everybody's asleep. That's what they give him from 11 to 4. When everyone's taking a siesta, that's when they let Paul preach. But over time, super effective. And so it seems that towards the end, it seems that they tolerated him for two, two and a half years. But then when you have this public burning of the scrolls that we saw, where you have this hard pivot from these Christians from saying, maybe I can dabble in Christianity and kind of keep a foot in this Artemis worship, when they say, we're not doing that anymore, Economy drops for the income drops for these guys, and Demetrius gets upset. It's only it's a financial issue only for him. We're not making any money anymore, and it's Paul's fault. And then he he is sharp, and so what he does is he wraps an economic argument in politics, in religion. He's combined all three of those hot topics. He says this is part of our identity. We're Ephesians. We worship Artemis. This temple, that's who we are. That's part of what it means to be an Ephesian, is to be a guardian of this politics. And this goddess that we worship, Artemis, she's not getting her due. That's religion. He's mixed all three of them together. His core issue is money. He's wrapped it in politics and then put a religion bow on it. And what he's trying to do is get people to string Paul up. That's what he wants. He's trying to start trouble for Paul. And he's successful. Verse 28. When they heard this, so when all of these craftsmen hear Demetrius' speech, and they start going, yeah, you're right. They were furious, and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But then they realized he was a Jew. They all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis. Of the Ephesians. Two hours they shouted the same thing. It's 12.01. Set your phone for 2 o'clock. And you imagine shouting the same thing between now and then. It's ridiculous. It's mob scene. So Demetrius has done what he wanted to do. He wanted to set off a powder keg and it's successful. All these craftsmen run out in the street and great as Artemis and it causes this uproar. We don't know, but there was an annual festival to Artemis in the town. I'm wondering if he did it during that annual festival when everybody's focused on her. You've got all these pilgrims in town who are worshiping her. And then you've got a guy saying, this guy, he's undermining our girl. And so all of them, 
The whole city, it seems like, is rushing toward the theater. It's this amphitheater. It seats 25,000 people. It's where they had town assemblies three times a month. They can't find Paul, and so they grab these two friends of his, and they get swept up. And they have an assembly. It's impromptu. It's spontaneous. It's run by a mob. But the terminology Luke uses makes it sound, says it's an official assembly. It's a gathering of the town of Ephesus. And it's complete chaos and confusion. Half the people don't even know why they're there. And then the Jews are going, we don't want any part of this. We don't agree with Paul either. And so they push Alexander forward. You can imagine how he feels. And so they push him forward. And his job is to distance, to distance himself from Paul. They won't even let him talk. They, he might not be on Paul's side, but he doesn't worship Artemis either. So he's out. And so they just yell. Again, two hours yelling, great is Artemis. I can't, I can't fathom that. What the atmosphere in that theater is. Paul wants to go. And he has some co-workers who say, you can't. And there are even officials in the city who aren't Christians who say, you can't. They're going to rip you apart if you show up. And so that's the scene, and then the town clerk steps in. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? That's what they believe, that they had a statue of her and that it fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash like yelling for two hours. You have brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we could not be able to account, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. And after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. So the city clerk, he's like the head official of the city. His job is to preside over these city councils, these town councils. And he also is a liaison with the Roman government. And he comes in and says, we can't, we can't do this. First, he appeases them. Hey, we're, everybody knows we worship Artemis. Everybody knows we're the guardians of the temple. Everybody settled. The whole empire knows. Ephesus equals Artemis. We're good on that. Then he reprimands them. These guys haven't done anything wrong. But even if they have done something wrong, this isn't the way we handle it. There are legal channels. That's what Demetrius... If Demetrius has an issue with Paul, then Demetrius needs to take Paul to court. He needs to follow these legal channels. And then he threatens them. And we're under... We could be charged with rioting. Remember, we've said before, in the Roman Empire, the number one thing is keep the peace. There's, this is not peace. This is chaos. And he says, we as a city could get punished because of what y'all are doing here. And then he dismisses the crowd. It's anticlimactic. And that's the story. And I've read that several times and thought, why is that, even, why is that here? Why do we get 19 verses on a non-event? I want to read about the guy who has Paul's... This, to me, I don't get. Why 19 verses on a non-event? We don't hear from Paul. We don't see Paul. No Christians mentioned in here except Paul by name. But we don't see anything these guys are doing. And it doesn't seem to have any long-term impact. It doesn't seem like anything changes. We'll see next week. Paul just leaves. He just leaves the city, which he'd already decided to do. Anyway, y'all remember um, old uh, cameras that used film? Negatives? So, to me, when I think about this 
story, to me it's a negative. It's a, it's a negative image in that sense of film. We talk about community transformation. That's our vision to see our community transformed by God. And I think what you see here is a city impacted by the gospel, and you're hearing a report kind of in the negative. It's the negative of it. You're hearing a report from someone who's saying, I don't like the way my city is changing. So let's not make Demetrius a bad guy. Let's just make him neutral, but someone who's resisted the gospel over the last two and a half years. And what he sees is, I'm losing business. I've got bills to pay. I've got a lifestyle I'm accustomed to. I'm not making money like I used to, and it's Paul's fault. Nobody's buying my stuff because Paul is saying that Artemis is no longer, is not a goddess and they don't have to appease her. I'm an Ephesian. I'm an Ephesian to the core. And he's, he's undermining the identity of what it means to be an Ephesian. He's saying this temple is not that important to us as a people anymore. He's undermining our religion. He's, these, we've been worshiping this goddess for centuries and now he's pulling people away from that if you're demetrius this is how i think it's portrayed what we're seeing is his response to his city being changed by the gospel and he's not someone who's caught up in it in a good way so again it's that it's like film it's a negative you have to inverse the invert the the colors and so that's what i want us to talk about a little bit what does it look like when a city is impacted with the gospel or by the gospel. When we talk about community transformation in here, we often talk about doing your deal, that whole idea that God has good works that he's created in advance for you to do. And as we engage in those, things begin to change. As we each engage in whatever it is God's called us to do, it's like these little pockets of the kingdom start springing up in our community. And as there are more and more pockets and they begin to touch and they begin to grow, at some point there's a tipping point and there will be noticeable changes in our community. That's true, 100%. We do not see that in Acts 19. People were probably doing their deal. We don't know. What we see is individual Christians. There doesn't doesn't seem to be a boycott. There doesn't seem to be a rally, no organized protest. Individual Christians taking seriously the fact that Jesus is the Lord. Well, if Jesus is the Lord, then Artemis is nothing. Then I no longer have to appease her, so I'm not buying these shrines anymore. I think that's the logic. Jesus is the Lord. He's, dis- he's demonstrated his superiority over all of these exorcists, over all of these magicians, over all of these women, more powerful than any of them. He's demonstrated that he's more powerful than all the spiritual forces in our city. Therefore, I don't need to make Artemis happy. If, I don't need to wonder if my wife is going to get pregnant or not because of Artemis being upset with us. I don't need to wonder if my crops are going to come in because I forgot to give Artemis an offering. I recognize I don't need to do this anymore because Jesus is superior to her. And so because of that conviction, individual Christians make a choice. I'm not buying the shrines. Again, no boycott, no protest. It doesn't seem to be anything formal or organized. Maybe it was, but we don't see that in Acts 19. Individual Christians, personal decision, Jesus is Lord, lived out publicly, not with a megaphone but in the choices that they make in their community. I'm not buying those things anymore. And then that choice multiplied out by however many hundreds or thousands of people have begun to follow Jesus changes a community. Basic and fundamental. You have made, most of you, a personal decision to follow Jesus. How is that impacting the public life that you live? 
if we will allow our personal decision to follow him to influence and impact the public choices that we make. Again, I'm not talking about public megaphone, public broadcasting. I'm talking about public out there in the public, in the community. As we allow our personal decision to impact our public choices, we will see our community change. And you see three areas here. Again, very practically, the decision was just, I'm not going to buy those things anymore. That was it. There's an economic implication here. The economy of the town changes because of the Christians. They quit buying these silver shrines, and it changes the economy. Now, we could say, well, did the church step in? Did the church say to, with a capital C, hey, you guys are selling trinkets to a demon, and so you can't, we want to help you do something else. We want to retrain you or give you a skill, make something better. I don't know. We, there's no indication of that. Did the church have an obligation to do that? That's a bigger question as you're thinking about our community. But very personally, does the fact that you've made a personal decision to follow Jesus affect the way you spend your money? How does it affect your finances publicly? Two big ideas when it comes to money. We don't have time to talk about them in depth. Generosity and stewardship, they're tied together. You've heard me say before, I'm not a tithe guy. I don't believe that's a New Testament concept. Tithing is giving 10% of your gross income. It's great. Most Christians give two, so 10 is great. But I don't think, I don't think tithing is a New Testament concept. I think generosity is. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's all his. Am I an owner or, I'm a, or am I a manager? Do I have a mindset that says once I give my percentage, whatever that is, I can do whatever I want with what's left? Or I have a generosity mindset that says it's all his and however you want me to use it, I'll do that. It combines stewardship and generosity. A hard truth, You've, you earn your paycheck. You know you do. Time, energy, education, sweat. But everything you've earned, you've earned because of what you've first been given. That's a hard one for us. None of us chose to be born into the situation that we were born in. You were born in 1982, not 1382. Makes a huge difference for your earning potential. You were born here, not in Haiti. Makes a huge difference for your earning potential. So a lot of things that you have absolutely used the gifts that you have been given and taken advantage of the opportunities that were put in front of you, but recognize all of that was gift. It's all his. And so even though we've earned it, in a sense, it's not ours. We've earned it because he's given us the ability to do so. Does that make sense? Changes everything when you begin to see your resources that way. Giving, absolutely. Give. I'm, I'm talking beyond that. How does the fact that you're following Jesus, that you've made a personal commitment to him, impact what you do with your money publicly? As we think about this, maybe it would be helpful for you to picture your community. That might be the most helpful thing, so you've got a context for this. When I think about my community, sometimes I think about Marietta, but Marietta's huge. It's 60,000 people all sprawled everywhere. It's all of that tan area. If I'm practically, and really it's probably a bit more just honestly, when I think about my community, it looks more like this. I, I asked at nine if that was a rhombus. That's not a rhombus. It's a quadrilateral. But I'm going to call it a square because that's shorter than quadrilateral. So bottom right corner, that's here. That's Stonebridge. That's the square. 
Move to the bottom left. That's Marietta High School. It's actually a Pentagon. I didn't realize I had five sides. You go up. That's Kroger. Keep going up. Top. That's where my parents live. Go to the right. That's Wellstar. That's where I go to Kennestone. I go to the gym there. Those are the areas where I tend to spend my time. That's a 2.3 square mile area. That's it. When I think about my community, the star in the middle is our house. Most of what we do, we do in that box. Not everything, but most of what we do, we do there. That's where our kids go to school, except for the sixth grade academy. That's where we go to the bank. Most of what we do, again, we do there. So when I think about money, hold on, let me pause. I want you to think of yours before I keep going with mine. I want you to have one in your head. When when I say community, do you... You might not think geographically, but you may. What's your area? You may think Marietta High School, Hillgrove High School. You may think Mount Perrin Christian School. You may think people. You may think about connections that have nothing to do with geography. It has to do with life station or we all work in the same office. It doesn't matter to me. When I say community, what comes into your head? That's what comes into my head. That's what I think about. What comes into yours? So now... As we move forward, how does the fact that you're following Jesus, if you are following Jesus, affect how you use your money in your box, in your square? Simple thing that we do. When we go out to eat, which is not infrequently, we eat in that square almost every time. Local restaurants in that square. If you ask our kids, if we say we're going out to eat, they say, which one? Is it the pizza place that we go to? Is it Marietta Pizza? Is it Three Amigos? Is it Tycoon? That, like, which one of the, which one of the handful of places that we go are you, are we going to? That's how we've chosen. That's a, that's a, a, a commitment that we've made. This is where we live. And so we're going to support the people who do business in this place. Doesn't make us heroes at all. It's just a way of saying a personal commitment. We want to see our community transformed. These people are choosing to do business here, and so we want to support them. When I ask businesses, what do you want? They say, we want business. That's what you can do for us. And so we eat on the square or around the square, and this box is where we do most of our stuff. How do you spend your money? Does that reflect your commitment to Jesus in the community that he's called you to? The second thing you see here in Acts 19, it wasn't just economic implications. There's also you can call them um, cultural, maybe. It's this idea of, of identity. This is who we are as a people. We are Ephesians. We take care of this temple. That's what we do. That's who we are. It's the big chicken for us. We are identified with that thing. And Paul and the gospel are undermining that connection. Well, now you can be an Ephesian without being connected to the temple. And it was upsetting to Demetrius. Even the city clerk said, hey, everybody knows it's who we are. That's not up for grabs. That's not up for debate. That's not what we're talking about. Everybody knows. We're the ones that take care of the statue. And we're the ones that take care of the temple. When you think about your box, and you think about your identity, do you ever say, well, this is just what people like us do? This is just what we do. George Barna did a poll in 2015. 62% of the people in our country said they have a pers- they've made a personal commitment to Jesus. That's not true. 
62% of the people in the U.S. said they've made a personal commitment to Jesus. If that was the case, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing as a country right now. Our society would be radically different. But then he ran another poll, another survey later in the year, asking about people's personal identity, how they came to understand who they are. What were the primary factors in shaping their sense of themselves? And this is what it said. Number one, family. Number two, being an American. Number three, religious faith. And here's the way it broke down in terms of a percentage. 62% of Americans says their family contributes, quote, a lot. That was the biggest thing. Your choices were a lot or some or not much or not at all. 62% of the people said their family contributes a lot to their personal identity. 52% said being an American contributes a lot. Only 38% said their faith contributes a lot. So if 62% of the people in our country say they're following Jesus, but only 38% of them say that the fact that they're following Jesus contributes a lot to their sense of personal identity, we have an issue. Your family's wonderful. Being an American is wonderful. Neither of those things is primary. Following him is. That's what it means for him to be the Lord. When you become a Christian, your citizenship is translated into the kingdom of heaven. So before you're anything else now, you're a son or you're a daughter of God. That is primary for us. That forms and shapes our identity, theoretically, more than anything else. If that's not the case, we're missing something. We're not allowing a personal decision that we've made to follow Jesus to influence public decisions. So when I was, uh, maybe uh, an example, a, a year ago, beginning of the school year, you may remember this or may not, it was a little blip kind of in the paper. There's a tradition at Marietta High School, the rising seniors roll the school, it's what they do. And so last year they had a new principal and she said, we're not going to do that. It's vandalism, it's against the school policy deal, we're not going to do it. If kids do it, they're, they're going to get in trouble. And so some kids did it and some kids got in trouble. It didn't help that it was mostly white kids that roll and we had a, a black principal uh, that year that, that wasn't helpful. But ultimately, it was this whole issue of, of rolling the school. And it doesn't matter. I don't care. I had a freshman and sophomore at the time, so they weren't included. If they were included, I, I wouldn't have mattered. I don't know that that's a sin issue. If they did it, they did it. If they got arrested, I wouldn't have bailed them out. Those are consequences of your actions. But it doesn't matter to me. Like, Whatever. It's not a, not a big issue one way or the other. But what was striking to me was listening to people talk about it. And what they said is, it's just what we do. That's just what we do. It's a tradition. It's just what we do. People like us, rising seniors, who look like this, we roll this school before the year starts. That's what we do. That's a lame reason to do anything. Anything. This is just what people like us do. This is just what moms in Marietta do. This is just what engineers do. Whatever, when, you, when I said community, whatever came into your head, whatever label you would put, this is just what people in my rhombus do. And so I'm going to do it. Terrible reason to do anything. The question is, this is what people who follow Jesus do. And then I'm going to do that. It may wind up being the same thing. It's fine. I don't know if Jesus cares if you throw toilet paper on a tree or not. It doesn't matter. But the question is not, is this what people like us do? The question is, is this, is, is this what people like Jesus do? 
Because that's our primary identity now if you're following him. It's where most of us miss it, is something else is more fundamental to who we, who we are than son or daughter of God. There's something that pulls stronger than son or daughter of God. And so when it comes to actually making decisions out there, when it comes to living publicly out there, something other than follower of Jesus trumps. If we're honest, that's where most of us live. Something trumps. And what I want to say is it doesn't need to. Even it shouldn't. To be a Christian is to be more, before you're anything else, a son or a daughter. Fundamentally, that's who you are. So allow that to shape your sense of who you are and to affect the decisions that you make out there. And at some point, people may say, that's not very blank. That's not what Ephesians do. And you can say, I'm sorry. I'm a Christian before I'm an Ephesian. And this is what Christians do. It's hard sometimes to stand there. But that's where we want to get. Last thing, this is squishy spiritually. So if you've got people who are worshiping this goddess Artemis, and they begin to shift and they begin to worship Jesus, it's going to change their values. Because the values of Jesus and the values of Artemis are not the same. And so as more and more people align themselves with the values of Jesus, it's going to affect the atmosphere. That's squishy. It's going to affect the way this air, the city of Ephesus feels. So think about your box. Think about your community. Close your eyes if you would. Describe it in your heart. Adjectives. If your box is Marietta High School, some adjectives. If it's your workplace, group of people, describe them. Okay, whatever you came up with, that's the, what, that's the atmosphere. That's the feel of that place. And if more people in your box commit to Jesus and then begin to allow a personal decision for him to influence the decision, their, their life in that place, then you're going to start using different adjectives because it's going to feel different. And again, that's squishy because I'm saying feel. But that's what it is. It's atmospheric. It's going to feel different. I don't know what the tipping point is. A guy named Tim Keller, he's a pastor in Manhattan, says it's 10%. That's all it takes. Just 10%. Then you begin to see a difference. Begin to feel a difference in whatever your box is. That's not that big a stretch. 10%. Not just people who've made a decision for Jesus but who've made a decision for him in a way that they're allowing that decision to influence the way they live publicly. You'll start having different adjectives. Some of your adjectives were already positive. It's common grace. It's wonderful. Some of them weren't. And the way those adjectives change, it's not by throwing more money at it. It's not by putting different people in office. It's not by boycotting and protesting. It's not by seeing what solutions we can figure out. There's a place for all of that. But ultimately, the way those things change is as more people in that box commit themselves to following Jesus and allow that commitment to influence the decisions that they're making publicly. That changes things. You see it in Ephesus. They're going, this, our city is changing before our eyes. 
our economy is changing, our sense of identity is changing, our, our God is changing. People are not worshiping the same God that they have for centuries. And that's affecting the way everyone is behaving. Let's pray. We don't have time to do ministry this morning, so I just want you to, in your seat, I'm just going to pray for you. If you're willing, I want you to just open your heart. You can put your hands out if you want to. So there's no pressure. I don't want you to hear condemnation at all. There's a reality here. We talked last week about living under the influence of the Spirit, what it means to be a Spirit-filled person. That is to live under the influence, to be led by the Holy Spirit. So if God lives within you, and if you're following Jesus, then he does, then there's no reason for you to ever be a thermometer. There's no reason for you to reflect the status quo. God, God, who created everything just by talking, he lives within you. So you can always be a thermostat. You can be someone who changes, not someone who reflects. It's not about being famous. It's not about people looking at you. It's not about having a platform or a stage. It's about allowing the fact that you have personally decided that Jesus is the Lord to influence the decisions and the choices and the life that you live publicly. That's it. You know, there'll be some places where the choices you make are the same as the choices you would make if you weren't following Jesus. But there'll be other places where they're different. And so if you're willing to say, you know what, I want to I do that. I, I got my box. I know my people. I know the sphere that you've planted me in. And I want to see that thing changed. It's not terrible, but it's not perfect. There are people in that box, in that sphere, who are hurting, who are oppressed. There's injustice. There are people who are dying and sick and going to hell and all of those things. And I want to see all of that changed. Just in your heart, you just begin to pray this. First, God, I pray that you would show me people in my box who are ready to hear the good news. Show me those people of peace who's, who you've been working on, who are open to hearing about Jesus. Would you send workers to them? And if I'm one of the workers, then would you give me grace and courage and boldness to share in a way that fits me? Not self-righteously, not judgmentally, not telling other people how to live, but with humility saying, this is who Jesus is. And he desires to know you and desires you to know him. God, would you move in the boxes that are in everybody's heads? Would we begin to see people in all of these areas, children, students, and adults, saying yes to you in numbers? We don't care if they ever come to church here, but we absolutely, God, want to see them coming into the kingdom, being adopted into your family. Second thing, if you're willing, 
But God, I pray that you would give me, that you would speak to me about that. God, I pray that you would speak to me about my public life. Are there places where I'm being disingenuous, where my personal commitment to following you is not reflected in the choices I'm making publicly? That's a negative. That's taking care of what's wrong. Positive. And God, I pray moving forward, show me. If you're married, this is something you need to work through with your spouse most likely. If you're single, you work it through with a friend, someone who you can talk with about it. God, would you show me? Or if you're married, God, would you show us? What does it look like to allow the fact that you're the Lord to influence the way we spend our money? What does it do? What, what does it look like to allow you, the fact that you're the Lord, to influence our sense of who we are? God, what does it look like to allow the fact that Jesus, that you're the Lord, to influence the atmosphere in my box? God, my prayer for the men and women, for the students in this room, is that none of us would be thermometers. None of us would just reflect the status quo, but we would all be thermostats, God, that you would use us to change atmosphere again, not in a self-righteous way, a judgmental way, not being jerks at all, in humility, in humility considering others better than ourselves, doing nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of vain conceit, but God, confident of who we are as sons or daughters, confident of the fact that the, the Spirit of creation lives within us, confident of the fact that the power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us. God, I pray that we would live that are dear to us personally and privately, that the implications of the fact that you are the Lord Jesus and that you have triumphed over sin and Satan and death, that those that would influence and inform the way we live. So would you fill us with your spirit here this morning? Every one of us, would you give everyone here every gift that they need to be faithful to the calling that you've placed on their lives, God? Not even talking about doing good works, even more fundamental and basic than that. God, just living publicly out the implications that you're the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.